Acts chapter 9, to be more specific. We're going to be in verses 1 through 9 today. And if you happen to have forgotten your Bible or you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the Bibles in front of you. The page number there will be 863. Now, as you turn there, you might begin to realize that you're a bit familiar with this next passage, or maybe you've been following along, you've been here week after week, and you've been waiting for us to get to this passage here in Acts, this moment, because today is the day that we learn about how Paul chose to follow Jesus while on the road to Damascus. Just kidding, not really, right? Paul doesn't choose Jesus, I was going to say, Jesus. wait a minute. No, that's not really what happens. Rather, I'm going to be preaching through the part of this 30-year narrative when Jesus reveals himself to Paul and converts his heart. So let's go ahead and do that. And if you would please uh, stand with us in reverence of God's word, if you're able, while Brianna, Brianna, I knew I said I would do it, Brianna Cunningham will read our passage for us. Again, this is Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can have a seat, and I will pray for us. Father, we're grateful for your mercy. We're grateful, Lord, for salvation. We're grateful for the promises of heaven. We're grateful, Lord, that you have chosen to reveal yourself to us. And I pray that today, Lord, that you continue to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to receive this truth today. Help us to find assurance and confidence in you. Lord, it is a blessing and a a peaceful reassurance uh, today as we walk through this passage. I pray that it is for many here as you give us greater faith. We love you. We trust you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. In my introduction, I made a little joke, right? I often try not to make jokes because they usually don't land, but uh, I made a little joke about Paul's conversion because to be honest, even though not everyone sees conversion like this, the joke was meant to serve a purpose. And the purpose was this, was to show us that we actually can disagree in the third and fourth degree doctrines, and even most of the time the second degree doctrines, and remain united in fellowship as a church. So we can poke fun at some of our theological uh, groundings that we have, because even though the how of salvation is very important for us to understand, which we're going to be talking about today. And even though we should always be striving for greater clarity regarding the wisdom that God has revealed through his word, it is always and it will only ever be the who of salvation that ultimately matters. Okay? We must be clear on that. The how matters, but it is only and always going to be the who of salvation that ultimately is uh, what is regarded as our, where our faith lands. Therefore, what this passage teaches us is ultimately 
the grace and mercy of Jesus. That is what it's teaching us. It's teaching us about the grace and mercy of Jesus, who is our God, as he is and eternally will remain our Lord and Savior. But also, what I'm going to be what I'm going to begin to step into or step us through is this, that Acts 9 is in fact a pretty clear articulation for how we all became believers in Jesus, all right? Chapter 9 is a clear articulation for how we became believers in Jesus. Now, to catch us up and to sort of bring us to chapter 9, last week we left Philip in Caesarea after he had escaped the persecution of Saul in Jerusalem, but also how he was led by the Spirit to go to that area in Gaza to go and lead a particular Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. And in doing so, we learned about the workings of God's sovereign authority as well as our responsibility with obedience. We also learned that even though both of these truths are constantly at work, they operate in differing degrees because the work because they work from different realms of authority, right? So there's God's sovereign authority and salvation and our responsibility in the way that we live and our responsibility in our obedience, but they operate in differing degrees because they come from or they work within different realms of authority, which brings us and leads us in our understanding of what chapter 9 is meant to teach us. Now, the place in which this narrative this narrative of Acts that we've been studying through, where it picks up in chapter 9 is, as we just read, with the man Saul once again, right? We learned about him uh, a couple chapters back, but now we're back with this man Saul who was violently persecuting the followers of the way, we are told. This man, because of his intellect and his allegiance, was considered to be a Hebrew of Hebrews. Therefore, he was this blossoming recruit for the Pharisees. But from the Christian side of the table, this Saul, whom Luke tells us about in verse 1, was savagely, publicly uttering his seething fury as he sought to go as far as murder people who might even consider to follow after that man, Jesus. And I hope that I'm not alone here, but as I've studied this and as I've uh, worked at considering this moment, it feels as though it is intense. Right? Things have seemed to have ratcheted up. It feels very intense. Saul seems to be sort of out of control. He is without control of his emotions. He seems unable to sort of properly process what is going on, what may be disunity and disagreement, because instead of handling himself with wisdom and dignity, he chooses bitterness and he chooses violence. Right? He seems out of control. Luke is telling us that Saul's focus was to remain diligent in this ferocious hunt for those disciples of the Lord at all costs. He was willing to give much of himself away as well as he didn't matter what it took from them. And apparently, he must have felt as though, according to this narrative, that Jerusalem was pretty well under control. Right, because he's asking to leave. Jerusalem must have been somewhat under control because in verse 2, he goes to the Sanhedrin. More specifically, he goes right to the top. He goes to the high priest, and he makes this request that he be given papers that would declare proper approval that he would be allowed then to go and drag those so-called disciples back to Jerusalem from wherever they went as they ran away from him in order to bring about their proper punishment, to bring about their proper Judgment, therefore, what we can infer in this is this, 
Saul's sense of misguided justice led him to be discontent with simply driving the Christians away from where he lived and served, from where he lived, served, and worshipped. But now he feels as though it is his duty to pursue them in order to be sure that they understand just how much he disagrees with them. Now, there really isn't a cliffhanger here. Right? There's no surprise ending. Most of us know this story because we know that the Saul that we're talking about, this Saul, the Pharisee, will be, is converted into Paul the Apostle. Right? And we also talked about this isn't some sort of special name change. Saul was his Hebrew name and Paul was his Greek name. So let me read his own words here because there is no real cliffhanger. Let me read his own words, which tells us where his heart was at this moment, how he was feeling he actually gives us a look into his, uh, the depths of his heart. This is Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 11. He said this, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and I tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. Those are Paul's words about what he was doing. And, but as it happened, as we already know, while he was on his way to Damascus, while he was trying to be Israel's champion, he met the king. Acts 9, 36, 9, 3, 3, 3, 3 through 6, rather, says this. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Now, this is actually the moment that I joked about where I said that Paul chose Jesus. Well, I made the joke because it seems pretty clear that Saul was not ever uh, expected or not, not ever thought to be the active agent in this exchange. It seems pretty clear. Clearly, Saul was pursuing what was not in God's will, and yet Jesus went to Saul and revealed for him who he was and what he was there to do. Again, I want to use Paul's words to describe this because the, his fuller account, what he reveals to us later on in Acts, his fuller account is where we do get the details and the evidence for our doctrine of assurance, or our doctrine of conversion, rather. Look again with me in Acts 26, this time though, for, uh, verses 14 through 18. Paul then continues on and says this, And when we, had fall, when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified 
by faith in me. These are Paul's words. These are the explanation. And we're going to study them in a year or so, a while. But this fuller quotation of what Jesus actually did say to Paul helps us because it clarifies for us this moment that Saul's conversion was purposed by God. It was done on purpose. It was purposed by God, therefore revealing that he, that being God, had Paul's salvation planned for. He said that there's a purpose in which Jesus showed up. God had Paul's salvation planned for. God was not just sitting around waiting for Paul to agree with him. It wasn't just sitting around waiting for Paul to finally meet the guy who was going to uh, convince him that the way was actually the way. No, it was God who moved. It was God who chose. He chose to accomplish his will and purpose, even though that trumped Saul's desires in that moment. Do you hear that? It was God who chose to accomplish his will and purpose, even though it trumped Saul's desires. We like to say free will at that moment. God chose to accomplish his will. Now, just for a moment, let me circle back to what happened to Saul and for those who actually journeyed with him. Again, they were on this mission, which they thought was from God, to capture and discipline all those who thought that they could abandon the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and follow after this guy named Jesus who died, whom they killed. But before they would arrive at their destination, Jesus, who we know as the Christ, illuminated everything around him with a light brighter than the sun, a light so bright that it physically struck these men and somehow forced them to the ground, signifying that something or someone had shown up, someone who was so powerful that they recognized that he controlled all things. Now, we are told that only Saul could see this man standing before them, and only Saul could actually hear the words that were being spoken. But the other men, according to Paul's testimony, again, the fuller testimony helps us understand, we learned that those men, too, could see the radiant glory of the Lord, although they couldn't see the man. As well, they could hear the voice of God, what probably sounded like thunder in their ears if we take the other biblical accounts, but they couldn't understand the words But this matters because then they too, if necessary, could give their eyewitness account that this miraculous event actually took place. Now last week I asked you to put yourself in Philip's shoes to sort of understand where he was in the moment. So this week I would like you to imagine yourself as Paul. Imagine, if you will, what Paul would have been going through in this moment. How would Paul have felt as he was going through this momentous occasion? What would have been flooding Paul's head and heart at this time? There are many things, but let me give you two at least. Let me just give you two. Number one, he would have been shocked because in this moment he would have realized, he would have seen that that Jesus whom he was chasing after all of those people, this Jesus is alive. The man he thought was dead. Jesus is actually alive. And we know that's what he saw because in Acts 9, 17, as well as in 1 Corinthians 15, 8, it tells us that Saul did in fact see the living Christ. That's how he articulates it. He saw the living Christ before him. 
And the second thing that Paul was likely going through because, uh, because of this and because of his immediate heart change and by what Jesus told him and said to him, he suddenly realized that he was not just persecuting the people of the way, but he was persecuting God and working against God himself. He was acting out against God. Now, it's not explicitly said here or explicitly explained, but based on Paul's other testimony, I imagine that he would have been in that moment emotionally devastated because of what has just been revealed to him. He would have been emotionally devastated when he learned that he was actually an enemy of God and not God's champion. Right? He was seeking to try and honor God as best as he could. He thought he was doing the right thing. He thought he was attempting to be God's champion, but he realized that he was an enemy of God. But as we know, because it is the gospel, God doesn't leave us where he finds us. Amen? Amen? God doesn't leave us where he finds us, and God did not leave Saul on the road. Instead, as we are learning, Jesus had come to turn Saul into a son. Saul had sought to be God's champion, but instead, Jesus turns Saul into a son. So what is it that we can learn from this historical story? Well, first, Jesus Christ is always the initiator. We see that over and over again through the Gospel of John, through the rest of the Gospel accounts, through the different stories of Paul and the other apostles. But here, specifically, we see that Jesus is always the initiator. By his mercy and with his grace, God uses all sorts of situations and conditions to expose the lost sinner to the truth and the good news of his son. He uses our circumstances to reveal himself to us, just as it had been done with Saul. Just as it was done for Saul through Stephen's courage and his faith. Just as uh, Saul was able to witness this growing movement of the way, which is, if you haven't picked up on it yet, who he was pursuing is who he was persecuting and who eventually would be called the Christian church. The way is the Christian church. You see, with our limited human perspective, we can actually never be sure of how or what God is doing to accomplish or to bring about his will. But what we can know, something that we can grasp hold of because it has been revealed to us in his revealed word, meaning the Bible, we can know that when salvation happens, God is the one who has made the first move. It is God who pursues. It is God who chooses. It is God who elects. It is God who initiates. Ken Hughes says it like this. We search for him only in response to his prior advance. I think that's soft and quite sweet. We search for him only in response to his prior advance. And the second thing that we can learn from this text or this account that we're studying today is that he is the one who chooses us. It is God who chooses us. Now, we're going to learn more about this next week, but in Acts 9, 15, Jesus tells Ananias, a man who is already a follower of the way, to go and pursue Paul and bring him close and into the fold. But in Acts 9, Jesus tells Ananias, referring to Saul, that he, again, Jesus talking about Saul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name. This Saul, this persecutor, this murderer, Ananias is being told, is a chosen instrument of God's, of the Christ's, 
And he is meant to carry his name. Now, I hope that that overwhelms us. It overwhelmed me when I was studying this, and I hope it overwhelms every one of us. Because if we think about it, please think about it. Our Jesus has chosen us for himself, and he has done so so that we may be allowed to carry his name. Think of the honor that we've been given as Christians to carry the name of Christ, to represent him in every aspect of life on this earth as well as in eternity. The honor that we've been given to carry his name. God has known us from before the foundations of the earth were ever set, and he has pursued us to do this, to glorify him, to be a part of his kingdom in a myriad of ways. He does it sometimes through his word, through the study of his word. He does it sometimes through a passing word of a friend. He sometimes does this through the rush of an experience. He also sometimes does this by carrying us through what may be the hardest trial of our life. And he does this with a kind sort of providence so that we would be brought to our knees and acknowledge how desperately we need him. It's the greatest of gifts. It is the largest of honors that we get to carry the name, but we have been pursued as a way to do this, to recognize that we are in need of him and that we get him because he gives us himself. Now, I expect that as we look at this conversion of Saul, that you might be asking, well, then, Jeff, how do we know who is or how anyone is saved? Who is it or who will be chosen? Or to make it even more personal, maybe you're wrestling with, how do I know if I'm saved? If you're saying it's all about God, how do I know if I am saved? How can I have this kind of assurance that you're talking about? And I think those are fair questions. They're absolutely fair questions, but they do shift what should be our perspective when it comes to salvation. Because we must believe what the Bible teaches, that Jesus saves and we obey. This call to salvation, this call to honor God for who he is, is not a suggestion. It is a command from God to honor the Lord, honor the Son, and therefore we will be honored by the Father. And if you do not, then you receive the condemnation that you deserve because God is who he says that he is. We must follow through. We must do, we must believe what the Bible teaches, that Jesus saves and we obey. Therefore, as we consider what happens to Saul here, how do we know that this is the moment for him of being born again? Hopefully, this will help us process our own assurance of salvation. How do we know that this is the moment for him, that he is saved? Well, only by what happens next. Only by what happens next. And what I mean by next is what does he do with the rest of his life? You see, the best explanation or evidence that this miraculous event actually took place and that it did bring about what the text says that it did, again, that being Saul's conversion from death to life, is by what would be the inevitable outcome, which was already designed by God's authority and providence. What would Saul do with the rest of his life? That would be the evidence that he was actually transformed and given salvation and made into being a son of the king. 
This is just simply Ephesians 2.10. This is what that teaches. Because our evidence, the proof, is what follows after the moment of conversion. Our proof, our evidence, is what follows after the moment of conversion. That being a life and ministry that faithfully is directed towards Jesus. For Saul, after this, his moment of regeneration, he sought to bring about as much glory for God as he could in everything that he did. Therefore, Maranatha, for us, as now we turn this towards ourselves, what is our evidence that we too have been saved by Jesus and that we too have been blessed now and are given today the promise of eternal life in heaven? Well, the miraculous event of our salvation is evidenced by what are the reluctant long-term effects on us and the church if we were not saved. Because Maranatha, we are no different than Saul. We are no different than Saul the Pharisee, Saul the persecutor, Saul the murderer, Saul the enemy of God. Each of us were an enemy of God until he saved us. That's hard to swallow. That's a lump in our throat. At least it should be. We should consider our sin the way that God considers our sin. Because without him, without God, without turning to Christ, without Christ coming to us and rescuing us, we would remain enslaved to our sin, which can only promise what it cannot give. Whereas instead, when you are part of the way, You can hold on to that confident assurance that has been given and chosen for you by Christ. It has been given because you have been chosen as you continue to grow in putting your trust on Christ's faithfulness at the cross. We've said this a lot lately, but it it isn't secured in in the sincerity of our faith, rather in the faithfulness of Christ. He is who saves. We are who get to follow in faith. That's the joy. That's the honor. We get to carry the name of the Lord everywhere we go. I'm going to end with what Paul learned after his conversion to the way. So we've said so much about what he's already said. So let's just, again, look at what Paul says about this moment, about his own conversion and what it all means. This is Romans 3, 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and, all, and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation for his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Maranatha, that is how we are saved. Maranatha, that is why we are saved. And it is who saves. It is the how It is the why and it is the who of our salvation. Right there in Romans 3. This is the glorious news of the gospel. I hope that it overwhelms you. I hope that you recognize what's been given to you and the call then to live a life that is obedient to Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for 
your mercy and grace. Thank you for the hope that we have, the assurance that's been given and provided that we can see through your word. Help us to be the church united together as we walk in this way. Let us walk with a lightness and a, just a, a freedom as you've desired to set us free. Let us walk with freedom, remembering that we have been secured by your son. It's in his name we pray in the power of your spirit. Amen.